0: Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider, a new podcast brought to you by the team at 11FS, a team of experienced fintech operators who help big banks take on digital transformation. I'm Jason Bates. This is episode 106, live from Level 39, the centre of London fintech. Today, We'll be covering the retail banking market investigation by the CMA and we'll have an in-depth interview with Bill Sullivan from Capgemini on his thoughts on digital transformation in big banks. As always, I'm joined by the rest of the 11FS crew, David Breer, Simon Taylor and Chris Skinner. Actually, have we got Chris Skinner? I can't see him. Where's Chris gone?
1: Oh, (laughs) I
0: think he fell down a very big hole. Everyone's looking sharp, although we haven't cracked open the beer yet. We, of course, have some great guests. Back for her third helping, a glisten for punishment, is Anna Herrera, who writes for the Dow Jones. Hey, Anna. Hello. We've got the omnipotent Bill Sullivan, head of financial services market intelligence at Capgemini. Hey, Bill. Hello. And we've got the customer's champion, Dominic Lindley, a member of the financial services consumer panel. Hey, Dominic. Hello. So with the introductions done, let's get into the news. Big story we'll get into is the final, 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 final version of the CMA report, which has been in the works for three years. And we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, For now, let's start off with a few appetizers. Simon, I think you've got something from Credit Suisse on how great blockchain is. Yeah,
1: well, the headline here is... Credit Suisse saying Bitcoin and blockchain pose little risk to payments players Uh, and they actually broke down some specific uh, companies like um, kind of Experian and um, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and and looked at you know what would the impact on all of these businesses be and, and some of the exchanges and they kind of made a fairly logical argument that says Bitcoin isn't very big Bitcoin doesn't meet regulations therefore Bitcoin itself probably doesn't affect most of these businesses blockchain as a subject being very different to Bitcoin is something that's probably more back-office transformational for a lot of banks. It changes the plumbing inside of a bank. So they say, you know, for most of these equities um, and most of these stocks, they're saying, you know, if you're a a CCP, like, um, or if you're a State Street or a Northern Rock or any of these sorts of banks, what they say in this report is that actually it probably makes you a little bit more efficient. There might be a revenue case, but there's not going to be anything that happens anytime soon. And I, I read this thing. It's over sort of uh, 60 pages and it is a very very thorough collection of a lot of good infographics done by other people with credits for East written on the bottom of it so well done researchers um but but i think it's also uh, very well done it does describe how bitcoin works pretty well but what it doesn't do then is separate bitcoin from everything else that's happening in the blockchain space which is super super important for anyone to understand bitcoin and then all of the other flavors it's like saying the only flavor of ice cream that exists is strawberry like i really like some chocolate ice cream please i want something different um but yeah it's an interesting report and i think it's it's a sign of the times that people are really starting to think about uh, how this technology is impacting stocks and equities um and that we're seeing a couple of other headlines coming along you know, real things are coming now. It's not just hype anymore. We're starting to get to that delivery phase.
2: Is this a bit sort of dads at the disco though? You know, we've got them <laughs> saying sort of, you know, Bitcoin appears limited, but blockchain is key. You know, we've been hearing that for yeah. the best part of two years at conferences we've been attending to type things. So yeah, there's not it, a whole
1: lot new here. Uh, uh, is,
2: is it just key that? You know, Credit Suisse are kind of finally getting on board or is this, uh, you know, a, a kind of a summation of uh, basically sort of two years of what everybody
1: else has been saying? So I spent a lot of time around research folks and they'll always tell you good research takes time. Um, and to be fair to them, this is a great research in how Bitcoin works and then a good discussion about how Bitcoin doesn't affect everybody else. Um So it's very well put together, very well crafted. But yeah, I mean, if you want to see something genuinely novel and exciting, you probably don't go to a research report from a big um, bank. You go to the blogs of central bankers uh, and the people that work at the banks. This is where the the thought-leading stuff is happening. So, I mean, what
0: are those blogs? Can you point some out that people yeah, listening so, should I go mean,
1: to I often point to Richard Brown who's now the CTO of R3 as being um, instrumental in, in teaching me nearly everything I know his blog gendal.me so that's g-e-n-d-a-l dot m-e cover to cover uh, You know, start from 2013 and work your way back um, but I will be remiss and not mention a whole bunch of other people but um, Tim Swanson of numbers.com is fantastic um, there's uh, Robert Sams uh, of Clearmatics uh, who's who's absolutely fantastic um, there's a lot of folks like that that I've learned from. Epicenter Bitcoin do a great podcast um, and, and video blogs. So there's a whole bunch of resources out there. Um, Ian Grigg as well. If you if you look up Ian Grigg's, um, I think it was triple entry or threeentry.co or something, uh, or uh, com, I
2: think it was. It's, it's horrible when somebody asks you to recommend something. You always feel <laughs> like you're going to leave somebody out. Don't you? Yeah, you feel, I'm then missing it's like so the guilt people. of leaving somebody <laughs> out. It's like an Oscar speech. It's so I'm getting
1: that way, but like Ian Grigg is, is genuinely fantastic as well. And everybody else I forgot, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so Bill, this whole sort of Bitcoin is not blockchain seems to be something that just comes up time and time again, but just doesn't seem to penetrate. It seems that lots of people say, "Ah, oh, blockchain, you're talking about Bitcoin. How do you say it?
3: I think there's just a fundamental lack of understanding what blockchain really is. I think we're still at that stage where it's it's a lot of hype and and people just automatically associate Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, and I think the fact that you've got so many use cases and proof of concepts that are still in development, um, I think we're still honestly we're gonna, we're going to get another six more months of this before we start really getting that differentiation. I think there's there's plenty of uh, blogs out there where you're getting some great information, uh, but I think a lot of the the simplistic stuff is really uh, oversimplified. So I, I don't think that's going to change in the the next couple of months. And what about from a journalist's
0: point of view, Anna? Do you do you get blockchain?
4: Oh, I have to say, I do. Right, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Shocker! Like,
0: no, yeah, there's know, there's, there's a test coming up. Very quickly, sorry,
4: so, uh, yeah, well, I guess we weren't even covering Bitcoin very much before because we cover wholesale finance and banks. Really, first of all, they would not want let you mention it. They'd run away screaming. They'd deny that anyone had ever mentioned it in their organization. So then, with blockchain, it made more sense. So. I've just, it's incredible to think that R3 emerged a year, less than a year ago. Like it, it, it seems like it's always been around, I guess. Um, so it has been definitely interesting. On the report, they mentioned the impact it would have on the LSE. I don't know if you saw it. And I mm-hmm. think they said that it would be positive. And I, what do you think, Simon? Do you think it would be Yeah, I'm sorry. I see the
1: argument for that. So, um, if you think about what, um, LSE group does is it's a large, well, chunks of it do a large point of clearing and settlement, um, especially the clearing side in the REX business of, of London Stock Exchange Group is, is phenomenally painful and costly. So if you've got something that makes that more efficient, then in theory an organisation that does a lot of that stuff that could do it cheaper and faster would benefit. Um, so there's a cost benefit there. Um, but I think there's, um, there's a lot more detailed analysis that could be done into these individual stocks if you really understand some of the use cases. And I think that this really speaks to the analysts aren't the ones in you know talking to Digital blithe at Digital Asset, the analysts aren't the one talking to you know inside R3 or to the vendors directly, and they're probably not on some of these blogs. So they're not the ones that can pull together this this depth of insight. So probably taking it the uh,
4: if you can do it for cheaper, you can charge. I mean, your customers will start saying, "Which are your members?" They'll start saying, "Well, why are you charging us so much for clearing if we can just get together and do it on our own or with someone else in the middle, right?"
1: Yeah, with somebody else in the middle and or you, yeah, if you can do it for cheaper, then there's value to spread in both directions. Um, that's I think the logic that the the analysts are using but I take your point your clients would probably see that too and and push on it who knows which way that's going to come out Um, my view is that CCPs in the future blockchain space do start to see a role where they are more the rule makers and a lot less the technology provider Um, and the technology is like more operated by all of us rather than by by one central party but then these become the rule setters which potentially takes out some systemic risk which, which could be
0: interesting so, moving on. Somehow, David, you've managed to get Pokemon back into the show again for the third week. So, you would fix say your that this is a.
2: <laughs> I haven't. I'd, I'd like to moan about that to start with, to be honest with you. I've, I've been locked out of my Pokemon account like twice now already, which is, which is strange. I, I somehow got this weird bug where every time I went into it, it was like a different sex or wearing different clothes or whatever type thing. So, it's uh, so go... a much bigger
3: issue. It is.
2: Well, it... <laughs> It freaked me out, I'll be honest with you, and I accused my
0: wife but, of very But there is something things. really nice about how Nintendo and Pokemon approach the gender thing. They don't actually ask you whether you're male or female. They ask you which style um, you'd like to be. Yeah, so there's, there's something really nice about that, about, you know, the move towards more inclusive society and about, you know, transgender and sort of multi-gender and all kinds of things. There's obviously been some thought put into that in terms of which style are you rather than it, are you male or female. Yeah, it's a nice diversity.
2: Well, that was the thing. I came back and found out that my my guy, who I thought was a guy, had a ponytail suddenly. So either there was some sort of like hair growth thing going on, or um, I don't know. But anyway, it's not what the the point of this one. But um, it's interesting. There's there's um, figures being put out by uh, Sensor Tower, who are a app analytics platform that Pokemon Go have crossed $200 million in revenue in the first months after its launch, which is just an obscene amount of money in terms of what people are doing. So, you know, can people catch them all? Well, they seem pretty damn motivated yeah. to do it, and they're happy to spend a hell of a lot of money trying to do it. So, you know, this is kind of absolutely dwarfed things like uh, Clash Royale and Candy Crush. You know, these are games that have been around for much, much longer periods of time, but in terms of the first thirty days, it's it's about six times bigger than than Candy Crush, which, you know, for a period of time was literally all you saw anybody doing on the London Underground type thing. So you know, I know we're gonna keep coming back to this one. <laughs> you are gonna week. keep
0: coming back to this. <laughs> yeah, just
2: just because I like to have a moan about it, quite frankly. But um but yeah, an amazing one. You know, I said in the first show I thought it was a massive fad, but two hundred million in thirty days, then You know, I'll color me wrong.
0: Well, I do think it's worth going to have a listen to the A16Z podcast on Pokemon Go. They bring up the idea that, that this is the sort of third business model for games. You know, previously you've had in-game advertising, you've had in-game purchases, but now there's a whole opportunity around physical locations actually sponsoring Pokemon Go to bring customers there that I'm sure will come back to. Yeah,
1: what I love about this is it's a genuine social phenomenon, right? This uh, We are talking about it a lot, but we're talking about it a lot because it's Significant. Like this is a moment we'll look back on in many years and go, "This was a a moment." And I think it was a moment because games are often the first thing that tell you a new uh, UI or UX is coming. So games were the first thing with the touch screens on mobile devices. The big apps were always the games. The big uh, apps on Facebook were the games. Now we're getting the first big app for augmented reality. Um, So this is, you know. If people start to get used to using augmented reality, it signals the beginning of a consumer behavior shift. And I think that's interesting.
2: Yeah, like genuinely, I've been trying to convince people for decades that I learned everything that I ever know about UX by computer games. Like anybody growing up uh, playing Pez and FIFA, you knew the difference between good UX and bad UX. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that was like my whole thing was, uh, you know, FIFA, good UX, Pez, good game, bad UX. So what about you
3: guys? Have you, uh, have you played Pokemon? I have it. Um And I think it's, it, it really is just a sneak preview into where the world is going. I think, you know, so if, if you want to convert it to the banking side, you know, banking was you took the branch, you put it into the internet, you put the same thing into a mobile app. I think we're, we're now starting to think, about well, what does that next model look like? And that next model is augmented. It's about, you know, being able to um, the whole geo based elements of, of, of delivering a customer experience. And I think, I think we're just, you know, the next two to three years I think is going to be incredible. I think we're going to finally start to see that shift from just adding mobile and adding channels to fundamentally shifting the overall banking experience. And I think it, I know it's overblown in terms of Pokemon as, as a view into branches. And I think it's, it's a little overblown there, but I think it does talk about the augmented life and, and what that's going to mean. Interesting.
4: Yes, I have. I have to say that I have, but I'm not really seriously. I still feel a bit embarrassed when I'm doing it. Like,
2: there, there like is I a, don't want there people to see, oh,
4: look at that person. Yeah, I feel, <laughs> there is, there, oh, look at her. Is that Stop Pokemon up <laughs> That's yeah. Pokemon shame. So <laughs> I tend that, to be doing this and I never catch it because I'm trying to hide the phone. But
2: I think that must be a real thing, though, because I've had that on the train a couple of times where there's been like, you know, some kids around me or something, which happens a lot on trains yeah. out to Norwich type thing. So oh, you're okay,
1: you can justify it. You have actual children that you can go to
2: parks with and play. Yeah, like, yeah. I yeah no but they're never, they're never with me when I'm playing. <laughs> the kids are just an excuse for me to go out and play with
0: it. So there's actually a story about a, I think, dog shelter in the US that actually run out of dogs to walk because people were coming to, to pick up dogs in order to take them walking so that they had kind of had an excuse that they could be <laughs> oh I'm, I'm standing here, I'm walking my dog I'm not wandering around a park playing Pokemon. Very strange. So moving on um, last week we heard, well I- I heard via the podcast, which was really, really cool to actually listen to a podcast with you guys on. It's good to know uh, you listen, Jason. I That's, did, I nice. did. But we heard that it was a bumper month for investment with 186 companies raising $1. $1.6 billion in June, um, with 730 uh, odd deals in the kind of year to date, and I think 370 that month. But this month seems like a different story. David.
2: I think it's a it's a weird one. Clearly there's a a strange definition here of who who's kind of calling what fintech and what is fintech is really sort of leading it because the numbers that we've seen here from business insider say there's 1.77 billion in Q1 as opposed to the 1. something billion in June which is quite a terrifying kind of uh, you know rounding error in terms of sort of doing it. So I think it was an interesting point that they were making here that it's all of the areas are down other than insurance which you know, arguably has kind of been one of the lowest invested areas to date?
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's natural, right? There's been more investment in fintech broadly. And so if you're starting from a low base, if it's starting to get interesting, maybe you just have like, it's not that big of a fig- figure, actually, I think. It's 277 million. So if you have a couple of large rounds, then... Mm. Uh, then.
2: But insurance generally is quite a, an invested area. You know, I've I worked at Aviva Uh, prior to 2008 and as far as I can tell you know the insurance industry has basically made a a very large box that was under your seat doing telematics to an app type thing in the last 20 years so it kind of feels like there's there's probably a lot of effort that needs to go into really sort of revolutionizing insurance maybe that amount of money
4: yeah, and revenues, is it's a bigger industry than, than banking. So in proportion, the market you could target is much bigger. Yeah. It's just it's taking longer, I think, because banks, despite what people say, weren't that awful at technology compared to insurers, right? It's especially investment banks. So there was money already there, and it was more of a mindset. Uh, whereas now I think insurance, I mean, when I was at Money 2020 in, a- in April, every VC I spoke to, if I'd asked them, so what are you looking at? Everyone would say, well, we really like insure tech now which maybe is a sign of a next bubble or maybe. Yeah, I think there's
3: two things. I think, one, we need to be careful around looking at month-to-month trends. Um, But more importantly, I do think insurance is poised for some serious change. Uh, If you think about the more personalize, personalized risk can get, your ability to identify actual risk and the whole insurance model is being able to you know spread the risk and pooled risk. And when you get to that more personalized, customized risk, your ability to make money off that is also challenged. And when you think about the role mm-hmm. that Internet of Things is going to play, that wearables will play, uh, the property and casualty, you get to the point when you have autonomous cars, where does the insurance lie? Where does the liability lie? Is it with the driver? Is it the owner? Is it the car distributor? Is it the individual parts? Um, so I think the whole concept of where insurance is going is actually ripe for change. And I think that whole concept of Internet of Things, there's and it's such an untapped – underdeveloped market. And in general, it's an underinvested market and a very uh, antiquated market. It's been a very conservative approach in terms of where they've been. So uh, you could see some really big step changes happening in the near future.
0: But I guess there's there's something really interesting there about the kind of big brother data approach. Because arguably, if you're going to... to measure risk, to assess risk appropriately, the more data you have about everyone, the better. You know, and all of a sudden the person who's like eating their quinoa and drinking their, you know, green smoothies in the morning, their health insurance is going to be much lower than the guy next to them tucking into his Big Mac in the morning. But, but, but are, we, are people really, really ready for that the, well, the, the, That are, level of data?
2: Are the insurance companies actually going to do that? You know, insurance is predicated on people buying stuff they don't use, you know, so actually, at the point where we're insuring people who need it, then actually the whole industry's screwed, right? So so you know it kind of it kind of feels <laughs> yeah. like the the mentality there is going to have to shift very dramatically and arguably insurance should cost you a lot more when you need it based on the data that you're doing and that's a that's a real shift in terms of doing there's it. A,
1: there's a real treating customers fairly issue then around you know like if you happen to be really unlucky and have a, some serious diseases, um, then yeah, that risk is no longer pooled. Uh, yeah, you're in quite a sad situation. Um, and then you know, are you being discriminated against at this point? Just because you know there, there comes a point where you know some people just. You know, would be bigger insurance liabilities and would cost more, but actually the whole yeah the whole business model. But, but that
0: happens already. You know, if you go uh, if you go onto an insurance site and it asks you a, um, a health questionnaire, you know, we've spoken to a, one of the companies sort of behind that, for, founded by two doctors who actually do look to assess risk around. You know, if you want travel insurance and you have heart disease or diabetes or you know you're missing a limb, what's the what's the relative risk and how does that work? But I guess big data lets you get much deeper into that. You know, into the science of how that you know how that might be priced and how that might work.
3: Yeah, I think there's two elements. I think one, you know, there was a lot of kudos saying. um, I think it was a progressive that said we compare the rates and we show you, and we may not have the lowest rate. Well, they're not doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're pricing that on purpose. They're they're giving the higher risk customers a higher price so that they actually won't get those customers on board because they want the lower risk. But I think it's even more important. I think as you were mentioning, I was in uh, Tokyo last year and we were talking to a Japanese insurer and we were talking about this whole Internet of Things. And being able to really get down to personalized risk and what they said was we need to be careful about that because if you get to the point where you can absolutely have personalized risk in terms of where they're driving, high-risk areas, now all of a sudden, you can offer these really low rates to these to, this, to your great customers, but you still have high-risk customers. And the regulators aren't going to allow you to charge these ignore, exorbitant rates to, to your customers.
0: So, Dominic, what, what's your view from well, the financial consumer panel?
5: I think one of the risks is that people become excluded or insurance is only available at a very high price. And I think the other risk from big data is insurance companies gathering all this data And not using it to really assess risk, but using it to assess the likelihood that if they jack up the premiums by a bit, then you'll leave. Mm -hmm. So they use it to assess your uh, propensity to shop around Uh and then jack up the premiums for the people who they think from all the data are less likely to shop around. But I think, you know, the insurance market is ripe for disruption. And it's already been disrupted once by the price comparison sites I remember we did some, when I was at Which the consumer group, we did some focus groups on buying insurance and we got a group of people who was kind of 18 to 25 in a room to talk about buying insurance. And they could barely name a single insurance company between them. All they could talk about was opera singers and, and mere cats <laughs> and, and whoever, you know, Snoop Dogg or whoever was advertising money supermarket at that particular point in time. It was Snoop Dogg. Yeah. He charged £200,000 for a morning's work, I think. Wow. Good for I Snoop. envy that man. <laughs> but I think that so, that, so that's the thing. It's already been disrupted, um, disrupted once. And the insurance companies have really lost the customer relationship and that's past the price comparison sites who really have a kind of very transactional relationship with the consumer. So they, you know, they try and get you to buy insurance and then try and get you to switch it every year. And then they take uh, commissions for doing that. It's not a kind of long-term... No one's kind quite cracked the kind of long-term relationship that might be emerging for some of these new companies.
0: I think there was something in the newspapers today around the um, around regulation and the insurance and that sort of bait to to have you stay a couple of years before we then fleece you because you can't yeah. be bothered to change.
5: And so, insurance companies will have to now tell you last year's premium when they tell you uh, this year's premium, so you'll be able to see how much they put the uh, put the prices up. But from the consumer perspective, it just makes the whole uh, practice of buying insurance quite complicated. So I was a Halifax insurance customer. It came for the renewal. I kind of rung up. They were really gouging me on the price. So then I had to go through Quidco and a price comparison site just to get back into Halifax insurance, who they obviously paid out commission to various people and gave me some cash back. And it just, it just made the whole thing a lot more complicated than it needed to be and added to, added to cost. If I could find someone who would do that all automatically for me every year and would take the hassle out of it, it's definitely a service I'd sign up to.
1: There's automated brokers, um, broker as a service or broker as software could be really interesting because the price comparisons could easily put out an API um, for, for what's available and you could get some straight through kind of enrollment going on there. That could be easily doable. Well, yeah, you, I think, you imagine sort of
2: post-PSD2 when an aggregator arguably can get access to that information, then there's going to be a bunch of them lining up to do that, right? You know, the, the like you say, the disintermediation that's happened in insurance could easily happen in in banking post-PSD2. And, you know... Some people will do a crazy thing for a meerkat, won't they? So uh, you know, we'll we'll see what they'll do with a bank account type thing. I think
4: there's also a non-necessarily dodgy angle of collecting data. When you speak to, I was speaking to a startup that does telematics. Kind of, um, they put it on. They put their system on cars. So their idea, and obviously they want to sell the positive side, but that the ultimate goal is also to help drivers kind of drive more safely because, like, you're incentivizing them so that their premium goes down. But you're also making sure that they have less accidents. So I guess there is a positive... Yeah, I think that's exactly where it's
3: going. I think that's one of the big things. It's it's not so much using that data all the time to to try to get that personalized risk because I think it's it's too hard for a business model. It's how do you reduce risk, and it's whether you know one of the things that when we're in Tokyo, a similar thing we talked about was you know giving notifications during uh, typhoon season. So if you're in uh, in a low lying area in a flood area, you get notifications to move your car, or it gets plugged into your GPS to avoid high um you know high risk areas that are more likely to have accidents. Mm-hmm. So they're finding ways to try to reduce risk and change behavior same thing on the health side you know can you reward you know healthy behavior as opposed to just purely using that data to to be able to be able to price it that way maybe through pokemon go use there you there go, go. We've you it. Here first. so we have Small the insurance life? use of pokemon go <laughs> uh,
2: although the, the pokemon go and mcdonald's relationship might not be the one you want to go with your health insurance <laughs> right but uh, i see where you're going with it
0: so, David, I guess another follow-up on the story from last week around Australian banks forming an impenetrable alliance against the evil Apple empire.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, no, this uh, is a, a, another... This is rebels. <laughs> uh, exactly. It, it, it's, getting, it's getting a bit Star Wars on this one. I appreciate But, um, yeah, good, good follow-up on this one. We've seen Apple slams Australian bank cartel, which is kind of an interesting stance for, for Apple to take. There was a particular quote in this one, so... Where's Apple, the article? Uh, so uh, over in Mashable, this one, which is quite an interesting one to um, to be sort of pushing it, but allowing the banks to form a cartel to collectively dictate the terms of the new business models and services would be a troubling precedent, which is an interesting and long sentence to say. It's, and I ran out of air as I was saying it, but <laughs> but I think the um, the idea that Apple are bashing people for basically setting up something that nobody can get into is reasonably ironic given Apple's kind of stance for the last 10 years of kind of like, uh, you know, sort of um, walled garden of, uh, of doing anything. But, you know, clearly they're not going to go down um, uh, without fighting on this one in terms of doing it. And, you know, given Chris's point last week in terms of uh, the fact that ANZ are actually up for already implementing what they're doing and, you know, getting very close to it with uh, Amex as well, then it kind of feels like these banks are probably losing a... Um,
0: a battle they can't win when the monopoly says to the cartel you're bad (laughs) what do you guys think i think we've had this on the show for three different weeks where we (laughs) went through a actually it seemed really cool oh no one's using it oh banks are now fighting for it australians are holding out now they're being bashed i take it that we'll we'll come back to this one again and again so moving on next up anna it's getting hard for banks to uh, to make money, it seems. Interchange caps, maximum charges and overdrafts, remittances being targeted by fintech. Uh, I think you've had an article out this week on how fintech could uh, cash out on the B- uh, Bank of England rate cut.
4: Yeah, which seems like I have a solution, but I don't necessarily have a solution. I was just <laughs> thinking after the... The rate cut. Most people in finance were were complaining. Pension, pensions. Everybody was saying, "Oh, this will be a tragedy. Like, what do we do now? It's going to be bad." But I thought maybe for fintech, it won't necessarily be bad, right? Because for robot advice and peer to peer lending, people were always saying, "Oh, everything's fine now." But what happens if rate goes up? Especially people like rate setter and ah, yeah, right. Rate Set They market very much on don't leave your money in your savings account. It could do so much more, which is arguable because it's not necess- the risk is slightly higher. But if if interest rates are still low uh, and keep getting lower, then there is more of a uh, push, I guess, for consumers to put their money in it, robo-advice. It
1: potentially reinforces those business models versus the traditional banking business model, which if you look at the share prices of banks is is really not working. And then with a the rate cut, it, banking is not profitable um, with, with almost zero interest rates. It's just a very painful non-profitable business to be in with those interest rates at the moment.
4: And and there was kind of, there's been a fall in interest from institutional investors in peer-to-peer lending. But again, they will not know where to put their money mm-hmm. again as, as before. So they might be pouring more money into... Kind of peer-to-peer loans.
1: Everybody's looking for that alternative asset class exactly. because there's nowhere. There's there's plenty of capital around, but there's nowhere to put it that generates a return. Um, and We're,
4: we still need to see if robot advice generates a return. Oh well, yeah. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but in the meantime, while you're waiting until you retire in the next thirty years, you could.
0: You could. Maybe. Yeah. People will be willing to speculate. So Dominic, how do you think that the whole low interest rate environment will work out with different investment strategies and saving strategies for the end consumer? You know, we've got a, a population that's growing older. We've got people who are going to be living longer, need pensions, need savings. Yet there doesn't seem to be a way of getting there.
5: Well, you know, some people think the older generation are more wealthy than ever, and they've got higher assets than any generation previously. But you're right that the low interest rate environment has meant that the amount of income they can generate from those assets, be they pensions or savings, has really collapsed. And now, you know, you will have another round of savings rate cuts for the banks who are already quite happy to leave, you know, particularly older consumers languishing in the kind of liquid gold Halifax account that they launched 30 years ago and are now paying You know, 0%, 0% interest. So that might encourage some people to explore higher risk options. But of course, they do come with risk, no matter what the peer to peer companies say. It does come with some risk of losing your money. But on the other side, and that's where, you know, everyone says that banks are not going to make money from the, are going to make less money because of the rate cut. But of course, the Bank of England is also shoving them 60 billion pounds in open ended subsidies under the term funding scheme, enabling the banks to borrow a quarter of a percent for up to three years you know, subsidizing these kind of big bank business models, which, you know, they're going to use that money to take on some of the fintechs. And of course, the money's being shoveled into the big inefficient banks and none of it's available for the fintechs. But certainly on the peer-to-peer lending side, you know, that's really one of the areas that's benefited consumers from more competition. You know, the personal loan rates, they're at record lows, which is really quite extraordinary. Whereas the markets that the, the peer-to-peer companies don't compete in credit cards and overdrafts, they're still at record, at record highs. But of course, when you put your money with a peer-to-peer lender, you're taking some risk. And some of them are increasingly beginning to offer maturity transformation. So they're pretending to the customer that it's a quick access account, whereas actually, if all the people want their money back at once, it's not going to be a quick access account. So the FCA is definitely going to have to look at how they're
3: regulated over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think in general, I'm not sure this rate cut is going to have an immediate impact on fintech versus incumbents. But I think it's just a a continued challenge of the margin pressures that banks are going to be under, and the fintechs are are providing one paper cut at a time, and and they're just slowly starting to bleed, and and they're starting to bleed in those profitable areas. And I I don't think that's going to change. So you're going to see margin pressure come in. You have 90 percent or 95 percent of their business just on you know keep the 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 business running, and you know to be able to keep up with the expectations that customers have. um, You know while the volume is still small for the fintechs, they are delivering wow moments. They're delivering incredible experiences in very small pieces of the of the value chain. And I think it, it's that extra pressure that's being applied to to the banks that's going to be the real, the real challenge. I think that's the opportunity. The question is going to be, can these fintechs start to gain scale? Can they gain access to distribution? I think that's still a big question. And I'm not sure if that's going to be feasible. But the reality is margin pressure is continuing and the bar is being raised for, for banks. And I think that's going to be more and more challenging. Interesting.
0: So moving on. David, Williams and Glynn, do you want to uh, talk talk about um, that bombshell this week?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting one. We've um, we've seen that, uh, and this is a, a, a news piece that's come through Finextra. So RBS scraps Williams and Glynn uh and that they're writing off three hundred forty-five million that has been spent. Uh, actually, looking at how this is done, it, interesting times. You know, int- this is kind of bad news on bad news for RBS, really, who have um, shown that they've got a half-year loss of two billion. So, kind of quite terrifying times i'll be honest with you, in terms of doing this uh, you know if you kind of throw 345 million pounds at a startup bank in terms of doing it they could have made something pretty amazing in terms of actually delivering it and uh, i guess the the challenge into rbs is what is it that they've done in that 345 million pounds that's decided that you know, it's not worth pursuing and uh, deciding it was a bad idea. I understood, and uh, and Dominic, you'll probably correct me where I'm wrong here, but I understood that the decision from RBSs to actually carve out Williams and Glynn wasn't exactly their own decision. So it was something that was being forced upon them in, from a, a European regulation perspective. So, you know, the fact that they've decided not to bother probably doesn't mean this isn't going to happen, but maybe they're just going to be taking a different route.
5: Yeah, and they've kind of delayed it. Consistently, whereas at least Lloyd's got on with carving out TSB and made the arrangement that TSB could continue to use the Lloyd's systems for a number of uh, for a number of years at a kind of slightly less than cost rate. Whereas RBS, they kind of had the failed sale to Santander of these branches, then they were going for a sort of trade sale, then a flotation. It just kind of changes every every few months as the taxpayer-owned bank flushes more of our money down a very big drain
2: <laughs> scary isn't it really because the, the the sort of the the article on finextra sort of refers to santander being sort of back in the frame for um for the the sort of customers in the branches which you know as it gets worse and worse and as more money spent then you know those guys are going to get a bargain at some point aren't they
5: well all the branches are not worth very much because if you think about it rbs could have given it should have given away those branches back in sort of 2012 and 2013 and probably would have spent less money than it has pursuing the um, the current practice, but of course, you know, it'd be interesting what it means for the customers as well, and how customers will react to being sort of part of this uh, part of this kind of business that's being sold off. I think the TSB customers reacted quite well because it was an old kind of brand name that people knew and uh, knew and trusted, and TSB very quickly decided to go for a sort of different focus and a sort of more customer-focused culture than uh, uh, than Lloyd's. But I'm not quite sure where Williams and Glynn is kind of. Quite an old name that no one really remembers. So whether they'll f- feel the same affinity for that when it does finally get split out, because you know the deadline's still there. In theory, they could be fined by the European Commission for missing it. Although, you know, in practice, we could have left the EU by then. So maybe that's what they're relying on. Is that it?
2: Hope hope it all goes away and uh, you know s- stop spending money. I was working for Lloyd's when TSB happened, and the whole strategy was completely different. You know, it was kind of a uh, the idea that you uh, you run it until somebody else wants it, whereas You know, RBS have uh, taken the approach of sort of carving out and seeing who will buy it, which, um, you know, arguably looks like the wrong strategy now.
0: But I guess it's interesting in terms of what exactly is for sale. Because you've got, you know, branches that arguably, you know, there's a whole proportion of the society that's moving towards, you know, digital banking, using branches less, footfall, you know, dropping, that whole thing. There, you know, Williams and Glynn, is that really a brand? Is that really something that, that resonates with customers? Uh, you've got IT systems that aren't there yet. You've got, you know, a p- proportion of the bank that's being cut out. So you've got, you know, 1.7 million retail clients out of 30 million RBS customers. Uh, it's interesting sort of what that is. Do, does a bank look at that and say, we're going to buy those customers and assume that they'll all sort of come across that because they're not buying infrastructure or brand or, or organization, I guess?
3: Yeah, I think it's it comes down to what are bank strategies to adapt to the future and and how would an acquisition like that fit into that strategy. And when you think about all the priorities, all the investments being made, all the areas they're struggling with, I'm not sure that's the area that they're going to put the money in the investment. I think, you know, they're trying to modernize. They're trying to figure out how to be mobile first. They're trying to be able to deliver those customer experiences. They're trying to keep up with the fintech experience that's being offered elsewhere. Um, and those those are tough challenges to begin with. And you still have... Not just legacy technology, but you have legacy culture. And and to be able to drive that change is, is challenging.
2: I, I still I still come back to three hundred and forty five million pounds. L- like long dramatic pose on that, you know, like who who couldn't have made a bank for 345 million pounds? And I, I just think, you know, to your to your point that this is such a heavily taxpayer owned organization, you know, like really we should Who is accountable for that? You know, I think somebody should be being held accountable for that, that spend in terms of actually uh, this
0: is all being sort of flushed away. Is that another dramatic pause? It is.
2: I'll finish there.
0: (laughs) So moving on to something uh, bigger and better. Simon, IBM are about to launch one of the largest blockchain implementations in the world. And I, I'd like to have, like, lightning crackle behind me there. In the world. The world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's a great headline. Um, but then you actually read the article, and uh, it appears what they've done is run a proof of concept earlier this year. Uh, <laughs> sounds familiar. Um, and then they recorded two years of transactions on that and simulations on it, um, and they were able to see that you know they could, they could get some benefit from it, and now they really want to take it live. So I think what they're kind of saying is, look, we did this proof of concept, we then tested it a bit, please buy it, Um, So it's kind of a sales pitch. Um, So the the proof of concept was really around dispute resolution. Um, And it doesn't really say what type of dispute. Um, But it was um, apparently uh, effectively because a blockchain is a record which nobody can edit, which many people can see. You're effectively saying this thing happened at this time, and we can all see it, so therefore, do we have to chase the piece of paper to figure out whether or not the merchant really did make the payment or whether or not the insurance really was bought, or whether or not you know the um, this trade was made on time? So there are a lot of disputes that are really silly disputes that don't need to happen, that you know, things end up locked up in court or, and things end up costing banks a whole lot of money just because they don't know what happened because it was recorded in paper or it was recorded in an ancient IT system somewhere that did, couldn't get you the information in time. So having it in a way in which everybody agrees to that state of information and maths itself agrees to the state of that information could be pretty powerful, which conceptually is absolutely why banks are excited by the technology um, but I don't. I wouldn't necessarily count this as an implementation. This is just quite an advanced proof of concept. Um, but it is a good use case, I think. Um, so they were saying, on average, um, a dispute takes uh, forty days to resolve. The, the types of dispute they were going after, um, and they measured over twenty-five thousand disputes, um, and they got that down to ten days. Which you know, kind of cutting that operational process out could be could be really beneficial
0: great so before we jump onto the CMA report there was an interesting article about uh, Capital who are a Swedish company in the States uh, that once you've connected to a US based bank account they let you set financial goals and automate the savings process with rules and goals so they do things like um, stealth savings you know round up every transaction that I spend you know to the nearest dollar or ten dollars and we'll save that there or they'll let you move a percentage of your income into a savings account or you know sweep what's there at the end of the end of the um the month but there's an, so now they've they've come out with an integration with iftt t um I, I think i added an extra t on the end there but i'll <laughs> go with it which actually lets you look at you know paying yourself for time spent reading or running just little stuff it actually gives you a programmable savings account with particular events and I thought it was an interesting um, example or at least starting to explore that sort of post-PSD2 world, that consumer API. And actually, you could take what is a basic savings account with a rate and an account and a, you know, and a number and actually add a programmable interface on the top, which you could then start doing some really interesting behavioral stuff. I don't know if you guys have seen it or,
3: or kind of thought about that kind of thing. I haven't seen that one in particular but I think there's two pieces. I think one it shows what can happen with the APIs and the creativity with the programming. I think and we are in the 0.1% view of where we're, where this is going. I think it also goes into the whole new concept of currency and and you know you know what is currency and you know as opposed to money could it be data? Could it be you know social i mean so there's whole all these different concepts of what data what currency may be, and you know I think these api's and you know could start to evolve to to really redefining that
1: it's it's interesting um so for those of you that have not have used um if um <laughs> It's it's so like the classic example is if you post something on Twitter, have it post immediately to LinkedIn and Facebook. Or uh, if my alarm goes off, then um, you know kind of do something else. Like you can kind of create all of these really nice integrations from anything that's already got. An API. Um, And what I like about this is, yeah, this kind of really nice... You've all probably sat there at some point and thought, God, yeah, I've got that little bit of money in that account there. I'd love if every time this happened, or every time something happened, this just kind of happened. Creating all these little rules. So if you've ever had to create a rule in Outlook, you know, like this person keeps spamming me. I'm going to create a folder for them. And then all the emails from that person is going to go into their folder and I'll read it when I can be bothered. Um, or like newsletters or that sort of thing. It's like that, but for your money, which I think is really, really empowering.
2: Well, I think there's some nice use cases, right, as well. You know, if I, if I check into the gym, stick some money in my account or, mm-hmm. you know, if I check in at an airport.
1: Lloyds don't block my account when I'm travelling abroad. Or if I go too near Amazon.com, like,
0: lock my account
3: and prevent me from buying things. (laughs) Or my wife.
0: Is this the future you see for the end consumer with uh, programmable bank accounts?
5: I mean, I think there are interesting applications to help make savings a bit more painless and to help move money out of consumers' accounts and into an almost kind of separate pot because that kind of of can help with the psychology of... um, of savings, I mean, quite a lot of these things have been tried before by different um, by different banks, and they haven't really worked so far. But you know, it's definitely interesting, and if it can help consumers build up that kind of savings buffer that we all need, if we become um, unemployed or can't um, or lose our job uh, or become ill, then that would be a good thing.
4: So is if TTTTT something that you can do, like someone who does not know how to program can activate? or
2: Super easy, yeah, yeah. It's literally like drag and drop.
0: Really, really um, easy to do. This this is your homework. Next time you're on, we want to hear about how you... And second
4: question. When I hear about all these APIs, all this really funky, cool stuff, naturally I think, oh, this would be amazing. It would be so useful. When do you think this is going to happen? I'm asking all of you. And is this likely going to happen? And is this something that's going to come from the challenger banks? The big banks, yeah.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> funny you should mention that. <laughs> well, I guess this is a really a good great point. Great segue, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to congratulate the team at Mondo um, for achieving their banking license yesterday. So it's been an 18-month journey. As obviously, as a co-founder, I'm uh, both incredibly proud and incredibly biased. So go Mondo. We've set up now with a really interesting set of digital challenger banks. We've got Mondo, Atom, Starling, Tandem, uh, who are all going to be looking at that behavioral economics around making customers' lives easier. So this is part of it. Two or three of those banks will push APIs from a point of view of delivering better service for end customers. They all have their banking license now. They'll all be going in the next six months or so. And I think it's a a key moment for those kinds of services to to start to appear. So before we get on to the main event, uh, let's have a quick ad.
5: Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: So moving on to the main event this week, we've seen publication of the CMA report, the final, 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 final version of the the thing that's been going on for, for three years. We've got Dominic here from the Financial Services Consumer Panel. Dominic, I wonder if you could tell us firstly a little bit about the panel and then explain to us what the CMA have said. Well
5: the panel exists to advise and challenge the regulator, the FCA, to ensure that they take into account the interests of consumers. And we've also been responding to this ongoing CMA inquiry into competition in retail banking and of course you've said it's been going on for two years but actually There's been a pretty much a never-ending stream of competition inquiries into retail banking, starting all the way back in 2000 with the Cruikshank report, and then ongoing after that with the Independent Commission on Banking, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, various inquiries by the Office of Fair Trading, and now this CMA uh, report. And so it kind of feels like a very, you know, it feels like a never-ending process. But in terms of what this report says, First of all, it's recommended that banks will have to introduce open banking. So they'll have to introduce a a standard for open APIs uh, by, I think, the 1st of uh, January 2018. It'll also require the banks to publish um, information about um, service levels and uh, customer service ratings. And finally, it require the banks to send out kind of regular prompts to consumers to encourage them to switch bank accounts. Now, I think there's one thing in politics, which is if you want to distract from the present, you tell a very good story about the future. And I think that's what the CMA has done with this uh, open banking API. Which definitely, from our point of view, you know, we support them. They have the potential to really revolutionise the market because they really can attack how the, how some of the banks currently make their money, which is taking advantage of consumer inertia, very complicated products, some very complicated pricing structures that people feel, you know, that they can't really compare and find out um, which is the best. Uh, and so these kind of open APIs, which Kind of really give consumers control of their data and enable some new services to spring up which will help consumers uh, compare and find the best deal and also help consumers maybe automatically switch in the future could be a good thing part of the big problem with the cma report is that it kind of hands over the development of these open api standards to the big banks which you know we kind of almost know where that's going to end up i mean i would think it's a bit like putting the horse and cart industry in charge of developing standards for the motor car they're not going to sort of take the consumer-focused uh, approach that maybe an independent regulator would. So, first of all, it's important that the governance of this new organisation is properly established, and it's not just made up of the kind of larger banks, and they take into account the views from from some of the new entrants and the challenger banks, but also definitely from the consumer point of view. Because these APIs, they do have lots of positives. They also have lots of risks for consumers. You know, probably starting with fraud um, and security, but also it's going to be very hard for consumers to understand exactly what they're consenting to. Mm. And while some of the people you're giving consent to to use your information will be kind of these new fintechs will help you get a good deal, you might also be consenting to payday lenders to get access to your account information. And yes, the payday lenders might use this information to lend responsibly, but they could also use it to find out exactly when you're paid and know that if they make a collection on the day after, they can take all of the money out of your account uh, quite safely. Uh, and leave you with no money to uh, to live on so it's making sure that the governance of that organisation really tackles some of the uh, some of the risks which exist with these open APIs
1: I wonder if it becomes a bit like um, you know when you go to any website, you get the notification about cookies, and you just like, oh, go away. I'm going to click OK. Like it, it's it's one of those things that just becomes an annoyance. And there was a thing I wanted to do. I got a notification and I clicked OK because I wanted to do that thing. And to your point, that could very easily be exploited for good and bad. Um, with Facebook or with Twitter, I can log into just about anything, but actually, I'm opening myself up to all kinds of hacks when I do it. And I don't think everybody's a sophisticated user of these services. I know. My mum definitely isn't, and, I've, and she's had her devices hacked a number of times. So having your bank account hacked because you gave your financial information to somebody else could be could be very very scary. But I, I think that um, that point around uh, having the bank set the rules was, was a super interesting one as well. I, I thought of it more like the cookie monster being asked to guard the cookies. Um, <laughs> it's just uh,
3: it's it's a it's an interesting time for APIs. I mean thoughts on APIs, but I think APIs represent a huge opportunity to be able to deliver value to the customer but it's got to be well thought out and they, you really have to think about the privacy and the security. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge and, and you're right because you know, for us around the room we understand or we think we understand you know, the risks and what you're accepting and what you're not um, but your average day consumer has no idea what they're giving away and I think that's going to be the biggest challenge moving forward um, You know, at least for for the overall program. I think APIs are, are, are going to be the future. I think you're going to see it much more in the UK and in Europe and in, in Asia. I think the US is still quite a ways away before we actually start seeing movement largely because you're not seeing much regulatory environment uh, in terms of enabling it and pushing it
0: but i guess we've we've been through this loop before with facebook and google and others where actually it started with impenetrable terms and conditions and consumers just saying yes and things got sort of simplified down to those you know things that now appear saying oh this will share all of your friends data and what you've been doing you know there are there were originally um permissions in some of the Facebook apps that let them look at your inbox. So, you know, I I hope that actually we learn from, I guess, what's been done in in other industries. The thing that I guess worries me is the, you know, I can see it on the balance data and the transactional data. But when we get to actually transacting to moving money from it from, you know, your account to others, I'm not sure we've seen that really, uh, sort of anywhere else. That seems incredibly dangerous, not only from a, from a, a hacking perspective mm-hmm. but also from a where does the liability stand?
1: Absolutely. And this
0: is why banks do talk about
1: security so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. It, it becomes a, a legitimate concern, I think, is, is you know, the security of users um, in an API world. I mean, you're effectively giving somebody else the key to act as you inside your bank account. Here's, here's a magic key with which you can do untold damage. Go play. Um, so APIs can be wonderful if that person that you give the key to is super trustworthy and is actually looking out for your money and being, you know, kind of like a really good, um, financial advisor in software, you know, somebody that, squirrels away my money for me and somebody that notifies me a birthday event is coming up and they've saved it on my behalf, like that sort of AI type stuff done, uh, those new services could be amazingly beneficial and really help the vulnerable as well. Um, The other side of it is you've got to see the the hacking opportunities here could be be phenomenal. But
4: doesn't it kind of give an opportunity for banks to hide behind the hacking and the liability and everything not to open the APIs? And what will happen if they don't do that by two thousand? 18, right? And even if they do open them, what if they give out something that's basically useless and meaning? meaning well, that's one thing
3: right? I saw. I mean, the, the 2018 date seems pretty aggressive. And I'd be curious in terms of what went into deciding how you're going to be able to get that in a a year-and-a-half period in terms of, of getting there. We know if we where banks are today and their ability to do that and to do that in a secure, safe manner. Um, there is actually some legitimate concern in terms of how you actually escalate that and what, what does that date?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's just an excuse. Um, I think it's a legitimate concern. Yeah. I think it's a solvable concern, um, but I, I wonder about having and just the banks be the ones that have to solve that concern, will that actually get solved? It's really about opening up the conversation to people who have the capability to solve that problem. So if you've got experts in security and cybersecurity in the UK that you can draw into this, can they solve that security issue? If you've got experts in business models and liability, can you draw them into this conversation? Because if it's just the banks themselves, one, they've got going concerns and BAU and cost and market pressures to worry about. Two, this is just in a, a bucket of all of the other regulatory stuff we've got to do this year. and We've got to do this one too. Let's try and make it as lot, not painful for ourselves. But, us but as what's we can. the
4: incentive at all for a bank? To, I
1: don't think there is one.
4: But why would they, like, why does this go to the top of their priority to do list? Like? So
1: I think you can make them up, but I don't think they exist at the moment. So the ones you could say are well, you could start to do all kinds of new things and compete. So you could offer new products. <laughs> you could partner with fintechs. You could be. The banking platform. You could offer uh, services to fintechs. You could um, take revenue shares with fintechs. You could, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes alongside that. So there are revenue generating opportunities that that come out of it. But I just don't think they're part of the conversation. I
2: think I think this this is not for banks. Absolutely, this is not for banks. You know, actually, you know, all of the things that have been put forward in terms of this report, you know, the. There's a bunch of statements here about open banking will re- will mean reliable, personalised financial advice, precisely tailored to your particular circumstances. That's like something banks should have been doing anyway. You know, there's like the old sort of Chris Rock kind of uh, you know uh, sort of comedy routine of just getting pride for stuff you should be doing anyway. Yeah. And it, it kind of feels take like this care is, my kid. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> just like, You know, like uh, taking pride in looking after your customers just should be something that banks do, and it kind of feels like. You know, the fact that we're having to sort of bring in legislation to enforce banks sort of treating customers fairly is quite a kind of a terrifying stance for me in terms of doing it. And I don't think this will treat main banks, treat their customers fairly. It will mean it will open up to third parties to treat customers fairly, to select what products are kind of most suitable to them. You know, I think the biggest thing that will come out of this is, you know, the point where third parties are providing... Most of the advice and becoming kind of regulated entities in the way that the FCA needs them to 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 give that advice, then you know what does that do in terms of product development? What does that do in terms of back end infrastructure for the kind of banks? And it, it kind of feels like it's a. I feel like the report, having kind of read it through, I feel like the report is very very well intended, but I just don't see the execution of this. If mm-hmm. I'm honest with you, and to, you know, absolutely to your point, Dominic, leaving this in the hand of the banks doesn't feel like the best way to get it executed.
5: No, and I think that's, you know, where there will run into difficulties. But these things are coming down the, the line anyway with uh, PSD2, Payment Services Directive oh, yeah. 2. And at the same time as the banks are kind of sitting in their room thinking about these things, the European Banking Authority will be consulting on various technical standards and um, for, for implementing this. for you know on a pan-european basis so that's probably going to be another excuse the banks use uh used to delay it it really is quite revolutionary if these new uh intermediaries come in who kind of act on the behalf of the consumer but of course, you could also get intermediaries coming in who are incentivized by commission-based business models or transaction-based business models to act against the interests of consumers. Mm. But overall, while you probably won't see many of the banks doing it off their own back is because some of these APIs threaten their business models of taking advantage of inertia, mm. of charging people really excessive unauthorized overdraft fees for making small mistakes or for being in financial difficulty. And in some cases, they exceed the um, the amount that you'd pay at a payday loan through Wonga, yet The banks are allowed to do that. The FCA has capped the cost that Wonga is allowed to charge. And the CMA really doesn't have much in its report for those kind of customers who are in financial difficulty and regularly in their unarranged overdrafts, other than that the banks should each themselves think of a kind of monthly cap that they should apply to their own overdraft. (laughs) But it's not really a cap the CMA sets. It's a cap that the banks have got to decide to set. And so we're going to go down the same kind of failed approach that we've been trying for many years, which is kind of sending people more information. And those kind of prompts will work for, you know, well-off middle-class customers who can quite easily move money from their savings account into their bank account through their mobile app to avoid an unarranged overdraft. They're not going to work for the people who are in persistent financial difficulty or who don't have any more money coming into their account um, until payday. So the CMAs tried to distract a bit from this kind of, you know, the very poor present by laying out this kind of future sort of idea of a technological uh, revolution, which is, kind of very exciting but then again it's probably not going to be the one driven by the uh, by the largest
0: banks. Yeah. But I guess I I mean I I don't see regulation driving a lot of the API side of things. I think if we look at other digital industries, you know, we've seen market forces, we've seen competition. We've you know, com lists 12 or 13,000 APIs from companies that don't have to provide those in order to drive new business. And with four digital banks coming next year with the licenses you know if anything that provides you know a great opportunity and the regulatory air cover in order to provide the APIs that they were going to be pushing anyway, in order to deliver those next level services and disaggregated financial ser- intelligence services?
5: I mean, I think that does. I mean, many of those banks will be giving a kind of putting out a compelling proposition. But I think they have to be, you know, they don't just have to be a bit better than the high street banks to gain customers. They have to be like five or 10 times better. They have to have a low cost service, an excellent kind of user interface. They have to use data to really kind of, Help the consumer make better decisions and show the benefit of those decisions to the consumer. And they also have to acquire customers. And of course, the the big banks have got very large back books of inert customers that they're going to carry on hitting with unarranged overdraft charges, which they can then use to cross subsidize really the development of some reward accounts, which are, you know, quite, you know, very financially um, beneficial for the customer. And they're going to be able to use the back book to uh, cross subsidize the acquisition of the front book. For the new kind of fintech banks, they're not going to have that established back book. They're not, they're not going to be able to cross subsidize it. And so they're really going to have to demonstrate to consumers that they are that much better and get by on sort of word of mouth advertising because a lot of them probably can't afford to spend hundreds of millions of pounds developing a kind of
1: customer, a customer brand. But for me, there's something missing there, which is the, um, the legacy IT banks are saddled with a lot of cost and a lot of inertia themselves, not just in um, their business model, but in how they actually operate and, and in a lot of that infrastructure and the cost of change for that and the risk of change. Is significantly high so there is like these api things come along that we're forced on and our systems physically can't do them in a secure way if we open them up we'll create more fraud than benefit will be created therefore we'll get hit with really big fines so we have to try and limit the damage on ourselves at this point now that's granted um that's not the consumer's fault that they're in that position but it is still i think a position they're in and there's got to be a way for them to to move forward to that and i think until they have a revenue case in their own mind, uh, and that story in their own mind, then it's not really gonna make sense. I
0: mean, I find that fascinating, the whole kind of business model around the big bank now, because it's, uh, if anything, this will just accelerate its collapse. You know, you've got expensive branches, you've got expensive legacy IT, you've got thousands of uh, front office and back office staff, interchange is being capped. The unauthorized overdraft fees are now being capped. They're being forced to deliver APIs, which could lead to them being disintermediated, which means they can't then sell further products. It really feels like and I have to check myself here to say, am I actually protecting big banks? But it feels in some way they're very much being boxed into a, an extremely difficult corner when actually they're supporting the, the financial services of, you know, 65
3: million current accounts. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, to David's point, I think the banks box themselves into this corner themselves. You know, why have these fintechs popped up? Why have all these companies that, you know, 23 year olds coming up and coming up with these great deliver, you know, customer experiences because they, there was a gap. There was a void that wasn't being delivered. And I think this API is one way to be able to help fill that gap. There's huge risk. I think the entire concept of the, the business model of banks moving forward already under pressure from a margin pressure this is a game changer in terms of you know how do you actually start generating revenue if you have to start losing this and we've been working with clients in the US in terms of testing some API concepts how do you monetize API but it's very tactical it's, it you know there's no there's not a regulatory driven process in the US right now forcing you to open yourself up to API so they're trying to find different revenue sources which are also delivering value to their customers um, but the US is going to be much slower in this process and they'll i think they'll at least have the time to be able to think about how can they effectively Deliver more value to their customers and monetize that process. Um, whereas, I think with PSD two in, in Europe and with this in, in the UK, it's, it's going to be a, a quick game changer. And I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, where do you come up with the funding and the and the technology spent to change your systems to be able to one, you know, benefit from it and two, not open yourself well, so up. This to risk this is why and fraud. I think it ends up like account switching because
1: actually um, they'll have to try and reduce the cost so much because the cost burden on actually upgrading their systems will be so 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 much that they they'll try and push down the actual functionality to the point where this thing and I know this is very bearish on PSD2, and I hate to say Christmas is cancelled and you're getting cold, but, <laughs> but, but I just don't think that these APIs, um, are going to deliver what people hope they will in terms of competition because they'll get so watered down that they'll be actually useless. Think about what's the registration process. Like, if I can register for Twilio and move, um, you know, I can make a phone ring immediately on Twilio, but I go to a bank and after six weeks, I'm still being considered by their registration process and I'm still yeah. not a HSM and put it in my data centre that they've come and looked at. Like these if that if it ends up like that, then it's just not gonna happen.
2: But yeah. is that not the then the sort of slightly watered down reality of this situation? It feels like kind of like, you know, banks have taken millions of people hostage and we're sort of vaguely asking them not to kill the kids type thing. You know, it's kind of it doesn't, it doesn't feel like um, what's being asked for here is really Going far enough in terms of doing it, you know. I, I try not to feel too sorry for the banks in this. Right. Well, we need to game a,
1: a carrot. Well,
2: this is all stick.
1: Well, I, I'm no, I'm not sure about that.
2: I think I think what we're being asked to do here is is kind of do a bunch of stuff that they probably should have been doing, yeah. you know, five years ago in terms of investing in an infrastructure that could expose these things to work with other people. I think banks have been way too preoccupied about, um, you know, similar to the. Real sort of um, weirdness that Apple were throwing at the, mm-hmm. uh, the Australian <laughs> banks earlier on, but you know the idea that banks are not good, in, good with sort of playing with other people is is kind of pretty much a, a you know really a, a kind of an understatement of the fact type thing. Mm-hmm. So you know I, I kind of think banks are being forced now to do something they should have been doing earlier. And uh, you know back to my uh, Chris Rock analogy type thing, it kind of feels like they really just should be looking after the kids. Quite frankly, I
4: think if they ha- if they've knew that they could make money, they'd find a way. I mean, it's just not, there's no incentive. Like, so it's not, I mean. But,
1: but I've never been, um, and I don't wish to disparage my old colleagues here, but I, I'm always surprised by the lack of imagination and not the lack of imagination in terms of creativity, but the lack of imagination in delivery and execution. Uh, so it's it's kind of, we can we, we think we can make money these ways from it, but we don't think we can ever deliver it. So therefore we won't try and we'll just water it down. That's kind of it's that's not articulated in that. That's just kind of the long six month process.
2: But I you know, Bill, I said this to you at the event that Cap had this week. You know, it's kind of I think the difference between providing financial services to people and actually providing a service to people is is like a fundamental shift. You know, mm-hmm. and actually I think what we're what we're seeing here is, you know, customers require a service from the product. They it's as important the um, the experience of using the product on an ongoing basis, which all of these things can arguably massively increase as it is just buying it. And, you know, most banks are much more preoccupied with the the, the selling of the product than they
0: are actually. Yeah,
3: and, and let's be honest, you know, if you think about, if you put yourself in the lead of a bank and you try to think about big decisions, they've been pushing off Bank transfer, technology transformation for decades because who's going to be that executive who says yes I'm going to take the risk for this you know multi multi million dollar transformation you know these guys are in their mid 50s most executives in their mid fifties you know they're looking to get through the next five to ten years and drive incremental change and they've been in a position where they haven't been forced to yes. make those tough decisions to be able to deliver the value to their customers so it, part of it's their own making understandably we've had the crisis we've had you know we've had many you know we've had Huge regulatory burden in terms of you know, distracting in terms of be able to invest in it. So there are some excuses. But the reality is there's not the drive to make that change right now. And who's the leader that's going to be able to say, I'm going to put the bank at risk to do that?
1: So even though like, – you go to the news section earlier, we were talking about uh, – we were kicking um, RBS for Williams and Glynn and uh, they were brave. You know, they, they tried to do something. Okay. Now they didn't try with the way a startup would try or the way a fintech would try. And they probably didn't do it with the knowledge that you require. And this, for me, is the key issue. There isn't the knowledge base in banks to really understand how these technologies could transform, transform and where it, uh, no, that's probably not true. The knowledge is there, but it's not always that's listened to or empowered. Um, and, and therefore when some, when an exec does try to be brave and does take the risk, they end up getting kicked. So the cost of actually trying is far worse than the cost of not doing anything for a big bank. So they have to find uh, ways to believe in this technology and the people inside their organization and outside it that, that absolutely get that it can be doable or people that have done it before, like um, M-Bank or something Or like they that. should
4: be told. Well, I was going to say, we'll is, is
0: this not then like the right outcome that that really we're talking about two-speed banking? We're talking about people who don't have that uh, that drive or that need to, to innovate or deliver amazing, intelligent, real-time services can actually be left with a commodity financial product. I mean, Dominic, is, do you see this leading to better consumer outcomes?
5: I think it probably will do over the much longer term. But it's not a kind of instant yeah. panacea. So there's a lot of reliance on this technology, which you know will be used by very savvy people initially, but probably won't help a lot of people in the in the shorter term. So it would have been better to see the CMA focus a bit more on the shorter term and come up with some real measures that are going to help those consumers in financial difficulty who are repeatedly hit by unarranged overdraft charges. Uh, and that would have been a lot better than you know this kind of idea of a technological revolution. But it's only going to happen in um, probably a lot longer than
3: uh, than people expect. And also, I think you know a lot of banks now are saying we're technology companies. That's what we are. We're about data and technology. Yet you look at the leadership teams, and there's not a single technology person anywhere to be found at like N minus three. So you know, I think when we talk about, I agree, the banking industry has to become a technology industry. Um, but you need the right expertise and the leaders in the position making those decisions in terms of guiding them to get to the so right direction. So
1: there's this weird cultural thing in banking, though, where technology is seen as the tail wagging the dog if it tries to speak up inside the organization. Uh, whereas in, um, in a fintech or a startup, and especially in technology companies, technology is the rock star. Technology is what drives the transformation, is what gives us hope and what allows us to do things. And yet in the bank, oh, the business is so, so smart because it brings in the revenue. <laughs> You know, sure. it's not always the case, but I think a
2: lot of tech side of organisations are, you know, by nature of what they do, are forced to stay at the edge of where you know where the, the industry actually is, isn't it? Rather than you know the rest of the business that isn't really, is it? So um, not to say I haven't found some people who
1: think you know Cobol is the uh, next big thing, but uh, yeah. you know, there's uh, there's definitely an impetus for change there. Isn't there? I, I, I got to give credit; there are some amazing people trying to do amazing things in a lot of the banks but it is, there's a lot of inertia there. And I think your point about the um, lack of executive leadership that gets technology is, is really challenging for those people.
0: Well, with that, I think we'll uh, we'll bring this segment to the end. Um, Bill, Dominic, Anna, thank you very much. Um, do you want to tell us a little more about uh, what you're up to at the moment and where people can find you if they uh, they want to hear more?
3: Sure, uh, uh, we're, we're, my, my recent project we're working on is a World FinTech Report. Um, so we've got a, a group of a steering committee, uh, we've got Chris Skinner on our on our, our group and a number of leaders from across the globe. We're we're trying to identify what are those moments of truth that are really delivering the impact to customers. And then when we talk about innovation, what you know, let's not stop talking about disruption, disintermediation, unbundling. What are we actually doing? What can be done today to drive that change? So be on the lookout in the next couple of months we'll be uh, we're working with LinkedIn on that and uh, we'll have something November first out.
0: Cool, and people can find you
3: at Capgemini.com. Capgemini.com. Cool. Yep. Dominic, tell us about. We'll carry on
5: advising and challenging the FCA to make sure it takes the consumer interest into account. I mean, we'll be following the development of this open banking standard uh, with a lot of interests. It is really crucial for the future of the industry. But we'll also carry on working on issues around banking culture and, you know, really getting that kind of really getting the high street banks to change their culture to focus more uh, more on the customer. And, you know, you can find all of our consultation responses at www.fs-cp.org.uk.
0: Great. Thanks. Anna?
4: So, I'm always at the same uh, same. same place, so uh, at eFinancialNews.com and on Twitter, Um, and uh, I think I'll try to focus more on looking at who is actually using the stuff, which I think is interesting at this point, three years on. Um, And implementations of things that I think are interesting. And then I have a newsletter. I was going to say, week.
0: I'm a I'm a fan.
4: Exactly. So um, you can find the link to subscribe on my Twitter handle, which is Ana Herrera.
0: You might have to say that a bit louder.
4: Anna Herrera. So it's, should I do the spelling? I think so. So A-N-N-A-I-R-R-E-R-A. Perfect.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, guys. It's been uh, been a pleasure.
2: Awesome. Well Bill, thank you very much for taking the time to uh to, to talk to us. And uh now everybody's gone we can learn a little bit more about you and what you've been doing with Capgemini. Gemini. So Tell us a little bit more about your background uh, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about the type of event that me and Chris have been along this week with, uh, with Cap.
3: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So Bill Sullivan, uh, I head up Capgemini's Global Financial Services Market Intelligence team. So long title to basically say I cover the industry and focus on all of our thought leadership. So really tracking what's happening in financial services, trying to stay ahead of it and, and really provide some insights to our, our clients and, and to the industry um, to keep on touch and, and help them out. So the we're just starting on this new program. Program, a World FinTech Report, which uh, we had the pleasure of hosting you guys at our, our roundtable uh, earlier this week. One element is getting a series of, of industry leaders and agents of change to talk about FinTech. And I think FinTech is one of the most overblown and yet um, underrated terms uh, out there in the industry. We're focusing on kind of two main areas. First is what are those customer moments of truth? What are fintechs delivering today that banks aren't delivering or insurers aren't delivering? And trying to understand what the nuance is that's making customers more attracted to to those um, to those institutions. And second, and probably more importantly, is cutting through a lot of the noise around disintermediation and unbundling or rebundling, and you know forty percent of revenues going away, and really thinking about. The, the reality of today of where incumbents are and what can be done, what can pragmatically be done to drive innovation. And you know, I think everyone is doing the spaghetti on the wall approach, which is innovation labs and throw throw a group out in Silicon County and have an in-house or have hackathons. And honestly, 90% of that stuff is delivering zero results. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of banks are, are skeptical around how do you actually drive innovation. Yeah. And so our objective for this, this report is to work with and identify some of the leaders in the industry and identify what's actually working and, and how can you actually both develop incremental value, um, business as usual, but also make sure you're tracking to where the industry is going and, and the big changes that are happening?
2: Well, it's a, it's a hell of a challenge, isn't it? Because the um, you know, there is no one thing. You know, it's not like kind of put your end, uh, put your money at the end of the rainbow and uh, all is well type thing. You know, I've seen you um, say a few times in uh, in interviews that um, people need to stop talking about talking about things, which I think is a wonderful quote, but, you know, how do banks actually move forward? You know, how, how do they actually start delivering against this innovation agenda without really sort of neglecting that uh, BOU mentality?
3: I think we have two models that exist today. I think the first one is you've, you've got the... The fintech or incubator or innovation lab set up completely separate from the business, allow them to think creatively, move at a quicker pace, and yet not necessarily being connected to the business. So nothing actually <clears throat> coming from those centers and actually delivering value. You have the others, which is. You know, innovation tightly connected to the business and completely handcuffed from being able to be agile and, and to be able to adapt. So I think we've got to find somewhere in between the middle of there to be able to do that. And I think it is a, a dual prong approach, which is you have to run business as usual. You have to deliver to your quarterly results and and find ways to drive incremental value. But you also have to be thinking about the bigger picture and you need to understand how do you decipher where those innovation moments are that you need to focus on? Who do you need to be the requiring or partnering with? Um, and I think it's a leadership. I think it starts with leadership and talent. You know, do you have a, a leadership team that understands technology and understands where you need to go? And do you have the right people on the ground trying to drive that change? Um, you know, trying to have traditional bankers and traditional IT guys running these innovative programs is again, you know, it's, it's that whole, you know, trying to make the, the horse run faster as opposed to think about what that next innovation is. Um, you know
0: you've almost got sort of two
3: two sides where you've got the
0: business saying you know how do we deploy capital in a better way or how do we manage assets or how do we do this that and the other driving it from business requirements and then almost as bad but but in a in a different way you've got IT guys saying I've got this brand new shiny toy and I can do geolocation and I can do a um, augmented reality or or whatever it is payment by selfie you know wow isn't it cool and and almost sort of both of those seem to avoid that delivering something of value to the customer. Um, so I, I wonder if there's something about the, the, the absolute focus on the customer with a background in business, with a background in tech. We're having so few people who do have that sort of necessary worldview that they can concentrate on the consumer while understanding banking and tech in the background.
3: You know, is that part of the problem? One of the biggest problems is you've got a lot of great tools and gimmicks searching for a problem. And and so, you know, how do you make sure that you're laser-focused on... What is the customer issue that you're trying to solve for? And is it going to be impactful? I think that's where we're focusing on the first half of this report is getting at a much granular level of understanding of some of these fintech capabilities and tools that are being provided. How many of these are bells and whistles that no one's ever going to touch? And how many of these are actually going to have an impact? That's always challenging because when you ask somebody about something, and they may not have used it before. Um, you know, it's always, you know, I remember we've been doing studies around voice of the customer for 10 years and seven years ago or six years ago, if you took it purely on there, what they said about mobile banking mobile banking would be have no future whatsoever because they'd be like why do I need a mobile bank if I can do it on the internet and that's because banks have taken the branch and put it in the internet and mm-hmm. they've taken the same exact capability and put it on a mobile phone and who knows what they're going to do next with it and I think so that's why you have to think outside the box that needs a new business model we need to be thinking about the the what can mobile provide it's It's geo-based elements, it's contextual-based elements, it's how do you leverage personalization and customization of data to understand what your customers really want such that they're pulling it from you as opposed to you pushing it onto them. And I think understanding that's going to be really critical.
2: And it's no, you know, that's no mean feat, is it? You know, uh, kind of how how can banks best respond to this? You know, they've got legacy technology, culture, and and kind of people in the mix here. You know, this is a really difficult thing to address, isn't it? you know, what advice would you give them?
3: I think it's it's laser-focused. So I think you, one, need to understand what are your objectives and what's your commitment to change. Uh, you know, 90% of the biz, of banks te- of spend right now is spent on just keeping the, rights, the, the lights on. And so how can you start, of that 10% that you have left over, are you laser-focused? And I think the first thing, you know, we always talk about when you're applying innovation, there's kind of four major stages. The first one is discovery. Laser focus and understanding how do you quickly identify what the problem is, what the areas you're looking on. You know, the next one is devise. How do you actually quickly, in a more agile approach co-collaborate whether it be with fintechs whether it be you know with incumbents whether the whole thing how do you have the right talent to be able to quick move quickly fail fast i hate using fail fast but it is fail fast as opposed to you know long drawn out processes and then how do you effectively deploy it and you need to be it can't just be devising it and developing things how can you quickly implement it how, how do you have a change management piece that goes along with the technology side and then how do you sustain it um and and that's a circle around that
1: there's a two types of projects in a bank that i've experienced there's the proof of concept that is really really fast and doesn't plug into live and then there's the 5 year program that costs 200 million and there's not much and that in becomes it becomes obsolete after it, 5 yeah, a fifth there's, year there's not much in between <laughs> like the journey between those two from proof of concept to pilot it's so, so critical. And, and this is something I spent a lot of time on my previous employers is how do you get from POC to pilot? How do you bring, get live customer data? And then once it's live customer data and live system, how do you get that to scale and how do you get it to more scale? And I think this is something that, um, you know, it's nice to have the lab that's off to the side. It's nice to have all of this exciting, shiny technology, but unless you've, are able to bring it into live and unless it's something the customer wants to Jason's point, and it's something that is actually useful and going to make a difference and profitable. Then there's no point doing it. So yeah, your fail fast point makes total sense for that reason. No, I
2: think I think it's really interesting. It's um, you know, arguably we're seeing a dawn of a slight change, aren't we? You know, we saw the director of innovation kind of holding the keys to the future in most of the banks, Mm. but actually, arguably the the people who can make it live in the hands of customers as quickly as possible are the ones who win, isn't it? But um, so, Bill, you you know, you've got a pretty hectic travel schedule, haven't you? You know, sort of. uh, you know, I thought Chris and uh, myself and the guys travel pretty, pretty large, but uh, you're, you're all over the place lately,
3: right? Yeah, we've been bouncing around. So you know, this it's a global initiative. You know, one, one great thing about working for Capgemini and one of the challenges is definitely a global company. You know, across the globe, you know, we're doing about three billion euros of uh, business and financial services. And um, yeah, you know, but it's great. I think you know, if you're going to focus on thought leadership, um, there's so much crap out there, and, and there's so much you know noise. Um, you know, to create thought leadership, think you have to have a couple things. One is you need primary research, and you need something that's not in the market already. And so you know, we're being, making a big focus in terms of really understand speaking with. Lead- leaders in the industry, speaking with people who have real World experience on this, and trying to learn from them and promote what they're doing because you know in the U.S. you know a lot of people would be surprised at this, but the U.S. is not very advanced and innovative in terms of where the industry is going. I think you're seeing a lot more innovation coming out of of Asia, and honestly, even out of Europe, um, you're starting to see a lot more there. And so, being able to bring the different best practices from across the globe and having conversations, and honestly, from a peer to peer perspective, like the conversation we had uh, on Tuesday uh, earlier this week, I thought was great. You know, being able to bring different people, we had you know, a mix of fin techs, incumbents, banks, insurers, and we're all facing the same issues. It's, you know, the concept of innovation is not a banking specific area. It, it's re- relevant in insurance. It's relevant in wealth management. And I think people are genuinely interested in trying to understand and learn from people in terms of what are what are you doing? What are the lessons learned that you're getting that we can apply within our own organizations? Um, because I think, you know, when we were in New York, we probably had a more – Innovation, uh, focus group of people. So people were head of innovations as opposed to the pure business leaders. And surprisingly, it was actually a pretty progressive conversation, but people really talking about how do we apply innovation, having similar challenges around cultural challenges and bringing it into the business and getting buy-in from, from leadership. Um, so I think being able to pull together as an industry and getting people to, to focus on this and talk about solutions as opposed to talking about the problem, I think is a critical step moving forward.
0: But do you think they're actually, um, do you think they're capable? There's a commodity financial retail product view that um, you know, digital is great because it lets me sell more of these widgets. It's great because it lets me service customers for, for a cheaper amount, but we're not changing a widget. You know, A current account is a current account. It's been that way for a long time. Therefore, that's done. Do you think that, that actually real time, contextual intelligent nature of digital services is something very different and therefore decades of experience in financial services
3: is a is a problem rather than a than an asset. Yeah, I would say 12 months ago we probably had half a percent of the bankers that we spoke with felt that there was something coming along the line around business models and you know the concept of banking products and what banking is is changing. I'd say we're Depending on which region, it's going to be different depending on where you are. Um, I think in the U.S., it's, it's slowly starting to catch up. I think we have a long ways to go. And I think, you know, we had a, we had a great discussion. Um, we had, uh, Alex Sion from, from moving, uh, with us in the session. And, you know, he's basically saying the, the future is baked in. We're already there. We already know where it's going to be. It's just a matter of when people are going to accept the reality of where <laughs> banking is going. Uh, we had another person, uh, and I won't say who it was, uh, talked to one of the incumbents in the room and said, you're, you're about a half an innovation away from being obsolete and Three years. (laughs) And, and so we we had some good discussions in terms of where it was. And, but they were real discussions. And I think the banking industry has a potential to really fundamentally shift. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to start in the U.S. I think you're going to see, um, you know, you're going to see in the U.K. and in Europe, you've got regulation, regulatory bodies trying to look out for the customer and find ways to deliver a better customer experience and fill those gaps that the banks have, have not necessarily filled to date. Um, as we as we discussed earlier, though, there's a lot of challenges that come along with that, and it's um you know it's a lot more complicated than than it's been laid out to do to date.
2: No, I, I agree. You know, it's a it's an interesting industry. You know, your your point around there's there's actually quite a lot of crap out there at the moment, isn't there? You know, like it's uh me and Chris Skinner were talking about this earlier on this week. It's kind of a slightly odd place we're at in the industry right now. Is that fintech has become this kind of kind of almost like the rock stars of banking you know it's kind of a, a strange sense that everybody wants to get into it and therefore you're finding lots of people are kind of coming forward and writing and you know putting out points of view and you know in the, the kind of days of social media anybody with a following essentially can become a influencer and I'm doing kind of uh, inverted commas for uh, anybody who's listening to this on the podcast <laughs> if I would say. then um, you know it, it kind of feels like we're, we're sort of moving into sort of quite dangerous territory in terms of who people should actually be listening to in terms of informed decisions.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's a matter of trying to understand cutting through the noise that that's the biggest thing that we've heard with a lot of the clients we speak with is they said listen we we get it we need to change we've we've put off a lot of these issues and you know you can say why they pushed it off whether it be the crisis whether it be regulatory burden and some very legitimate concerns in terms of what they've been focused on um and they've been more willing to put the band-aids on their channel approach and you know do incremental siloed uh, builds because that's what they had to do i think now they're coming to the point where they're realizing all right, we've got to do something different. When you think about what you look at some of these fintechs, and while they don't have a, bi- a viable business model moving forward, and I don't think they're going to be a major threat, the reality is they're delivering some pretty cool things, and yeah, you know, our customers would love to have something like that. And we don't have a system that can even come close to allowing us to provide that today. And we we asked um you know in the last survey we did for our banking report we we asked we asked the executives you know do you think the industry is changing and like ninety percent said the pace of change is accelerating. Ninety six percent of them said the industry is quickly moving more towards a digital ecosystem. And then when we asked, are your core systems capable to work and function in this new system? Only 14% of them said yes. <laughs> and wow. so they have a when you, so there's an acknowledgement now. So there's at least the we are in trouble. You know, we need to think about what the solution is, but we need help figuring cutting through the noise in terms of what's viable, what things do our customers really want, how do we get there? And then also how do we do it more quickly? How are we more efficient? How do we actually deploy this innovation in a more effective, quicker, agile approach?
2: Well that that's good. You know, I think the you know the first of any 10-step program is sort of (laughs) a problem, right? So uh, I think if if we get more uh, executives to that point where they're actually admitting there is an issue and they need to do something about it, then actually I think we'll start to see wholesale Change in terms of the favour of the customer,
0: uh, and with the work we've been doing at Eleven FS, you know, we've been around talking to different people about these kind of new banking propositions, how you build them, how you launch them, what you do, it, and it seems there are interesting kind of schools of thought. Of which route do you go? You know, do you uh, build something by the side of your big bank and sort of start from scratch? Do you do some massive core systems transformation program? Do you build something internally that half connects to your systems and you're not in or out? Where do you see people going with this?
3: Every every direction and more. Uh, I, I don't. I really don't think there's a. I, I think one there's there's not a single answer. And I think it certainly depends on where the bank is in terms of what they're trying to do, what their infrastructure is, what their legacy culture is, and honestly who they want to be in the future. I think it. it you've, I think they're starting to. you have seen a lot more focus in terms of going from product centric to customer centric. And you know, I think I know that's a buzzword everyone wants to say, it, but I think you actually are. I think you are really seeing banks take a more customer centric approach um, and trying to figure out where they are. So I, I don't think you're going to see anybody do you're not gonna see many core you know of the large players do core system ripouts. Um there's just not a single there's not a leader out there I think that's willing to to take that risk. Um I, I there's was talk- <laughs> we were talking with a um a bank recently who
0: said they had around three thousand internal systems and forty thousand interfaces between those systems. And you think that almost makes it impossible to do that kind of you know core systems transformation. Um it's so, the you know. world biggest version of Jenga.
3: <laughs>
2: it's like, you know, literally you don't know what you touch and you don't know what the impact's going to be. So, so. But I think
3: there's ways to do it, right? So you at the end of the day, when we talk about technol- banks becoming technology companies, banks are going to become data companies. So, you know, your ability to have access to data, to leverage the data effectively, to draw insights from that data, to provide more personalized and customized experience to your customers that they want when they want it, I think that's going to be the, the critical component. I think that, that concept of the contextual experience, I think, you know, you guys mentioned the, you know, 1% of the way uh, finished on digital. I think it's absolutely true. I think we, uh, that may be a generous uh, number in terms of 1%. It may be less than that because I think what the banking world is going to look like in three years from, from five years from now is going to be fundamentally different than what it was before. Now, is the entire industry going to shift? No. But are you going to see pockets that are really driving some real revolution? I think you will start to see some big changes.
0: And so I guess with
3: telcos, we've seen sort of third world countries or
0: kind of, you know, uh, second world countries do that leapfrog, you know, not putting land- lines but go straight to to mobile uh, have you seen anything in the kind of banking financial cer so, I mean everyone brings up M-Pesa you know as their example but I, beyond that you know what have you seen recently is, is there a, a leapfrog going on in, in place in the world where they had to stop building this this technology
3: not that I've seen to date. I mean, I think, you know, certainly you've seen collaborations with banks partnering with telcos and trying to find access to their customers. And I think, you know, you're seeing in China, if you look at what Alibaba's doing with, with Ant Financial, um, you know, they're, you know, what, what are some of the advantages that banks will always have? They still have trust, customer trust. They have scale. They've got, um, you know, they're required to function day to day lives from a payments perspective. So if you look at some of the retail companies out there, you know, there could be a play where, you know, if you could, if they start to set up become that platform they start to be where customers are because that's one of the things banks are looking to do it's it's how do you you're, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get your customers to come to you so you're not going to bring your customers to the bank it's hard to bring your customers to your app uh, how do you get to the point where you're part of your customers life and you're where they want to be and then it's a seamless interaction so I think you know there's there could be some kind of play you know from a from a retail perspective from a telco perspective um, but I think there's still a lot a lot that can be done. I think the, the good news is there's not a single answer um um, the bad news is there's not a, a single recommendation.
2: <laughs> if uh, everybody was doing it and it was easy, then it would be uh, you know something the banks wouldn't have to work at, wouldn't it? So, uh, so Bill, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Bill Sullivan, Head of Global Financial Services Marketing Intelligence for Capgemini. Long title, excellent,
3: excellent title.
2: <laughs> you must need really big business cards.
3: Right? I know, right? <laughs> I so, thank
2: you very much for joining us anyway.
0: Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So that's all we have time for this week. Thanks again to our guests and to you for listening. Fintech Insiders is the fastest growing fintech podcast in the world. In our first five shows, we've been downloaded in 56 countries and we wouldn't be here without you. So if you've got any feedback, requests or comments, do reach out on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And with that, we'll see you next week. Have a great one.